one of the things that can help us in everyday life is to think about the journey, to think about process as opposed to product, to think about the journey as opposed to the goal. Because there are several, you see, in general, um, and here now I'm going to be bringing in all sorts of elements from both Jungian psychology and, and uh, literature, but um, in general we have been, uh, we are living in a patriarchal culture which values doing. Doing. What are you doing? When are you going to get a good job? When are you going to stop that singing lark? When are you going to stop dreaming? So we're living in a culture that tends to be much more um, uh, focused on product as opposed to process. So one of the ways in which we can for ourselves, live soulfully every day, is to know that we are on the journey, that where we are is where we're meant to be at the time. So although our ego, which was quite important to us when we were younger, and you know we can't get rid of it, although in the Eastern tradition, um, and I think there's merit in that, we're supposed to be learning to uh, allow the ego to be subsumed, if you like, by the higher self. Um, although our ego might be saying to us, I want this, I want that, well, I'm not going for that unless I get this, whatever, whatever, um, it doesn't actually serve us. And when we're in the world of healing, needing to heal, that's my world in terms of uh, you know, my, my practice as a therapist, but also um, what I write about, learning to heal ourselves, this is useless. You cannot heal by your will alone. You cannot say, okay, I'm, I'm getting over that now, that's it. Or even consciousness. When we become conscious, that's why I'm repeating this pattern. That already is the start of some change that can happen. But we cannot do it by our will only. It is very much to do with our hearts. So more and more, I think, as we're moving on this spiritual path, we're re realizing no matter how much we try and force something to happen, it's not going to happen if it's not in our soul destiny either. And the more we can connect with our hearts and with our beingness. Now, in terms of Jungian psychology, the heart, beingness, receptivity, process, and paradox, all of these are connected with the feminine. Now, that doesn't mean that it's only women who have it, as you well know, because men and women both have uh, masculine and feminine energies. Some men are extremely well-developed in the feminine, particularly if they're involved in literature, painting, art, anything like that. Um, and so the feminine energy is the one that allows us to just be as opposed to, or for God's sake, would you ever get a life type feeling? Which we all have as well, because I mean, we, you know, we are complex beings. But if we can live with this idea of process, that you are on the journey and you are where you're meant to be. When I was um, you know, uh, uh, younger uh, and going through all sorts of traumatic or difficult experiences, you, know, you, you, you find it very hard to accept that this is going on in your life and you think, well, I, you know, I've done work on this, I know myself, you know, why is this going on again? But the point is that the minute you surrender, and people know this, people who, uh, anybody who are involved in programs to do with uh, addictions and all of this know this, that the moment of surrender, you're surrendering. What are you surrendering to? You're surrendering to a higher power. You're surrendering to the archetype. Now, what are archetypes? Archetypes is another Jungian word, if you like, for energies, forces, energy forces, that all of us um, have, all of us are, 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 are um, I can't think of the right word, are influenced by, we all have archetypes, but the archetype itself, let's say the archetype of war, the archetype of the mother, the archetype of the father, they're all there, however, your idea of a mother is different to mine. Why? Because it's based on your first experience 
in your life, based on the, the face of your own mother. So there you get the archetype. I'm teaching Jung next week, so I'm going to have to have a little chart. I don't have it here. You have the archetype. So you have the big mother archetype. We have Mother Ireland also, and there are many, many collective archetypes. And then, uh, as a crust over the archetype, you have the complex. Now, you've all heard of complexes. And in case you're thinking you don't have any, everybody has complexes. Um, now, the complex is a crust that is formed over the archetype, in, in, in such as that my mother complex be different to yours. And it would be based on your life experience, your early life experience. So, what happens? As we, um, first of all, the, there are lifetime archetypes. There are archetypes that um, begin in the womb. The motifs are there. So, your early life in the womb, because that's very important to remember that uh, um, stage. The birth, early life, all of that. The motifs go on throughout your life. So if you come into the world, and I always use myself, um, but, but all of you can relate in different ways to this. If you come in with some... Is the sun bothering you? No, okay. Um, in, in, if you come in... Uh, because I believe that our soul chooses different embodiments in line with our spiritual challenges. So we have lessons to learn when we're here. We're, we're not here by accident. We're here, in my view, we're here to learn and to grow indeed and to understand our challenges. So back to the womb. If you have chosen to come in to deal with, I'm using this uh, uh, one in particular, to deal with uh, being alone or being abandoned what will be your first experience? Probably your birth or your early life where you'll be separated out and on your own. This was my experience. I spent two months in an incubator in Galway because I wasn't big enough to be brought home. I was only three pounds and you could not bring a three pound baby who wasn't breathing on her own home. So the first imprint there is there is a learning in that. There were masses set for me in Kylemore. That's why my, I was named Benedict by my folks, because um, there was a great connection with the Benedictines around here when I was born. And so um, this might be your first uh, experience. But the motif is there. So later on, what might be the next one? It could possibly, it possibly be another separation. Then it could be a marriage and a divorce. A partnership that ends why each time you are landed with the same lesson until you learn it, until you learn the lesson and can move on and overcome it. Now, the motifs, that th those uh, strands, those um, energies, are there for our personal growth. So, as soon as we become aware of um, being able to, uh, or have some awareness of them, then we can actually uh, grow through it. I remember meeting... Um, uh, you know, over the years I, I, I go to conferences and things like this all over the world really and I meet um, like-minded brothers and sisters who are also involved in this work and you kind of feel a kinship even if, it, if, if you can't understand the language like there was a Russian uh, man that uh, we had lunch together with an interpreter because there was so much we wanted to talk about we were talking about the, the trauma of the baby uh, actually um, at birth, he was a doctor, being born with forceps and how this actually affects the chakras um, in a negative way. And so it's necessary to have healing uh, to, to, to bring an, an alignment uh, to the child. But um, now I've forgotten what I was saying before. I went off on this story. Um, hmm? Alone, learning the lessons. Yes. So, but so th th this is part of of the journey. Is is coming to a place where you say to yourself, you know what, I'm where I'm meant to be, and this is what I need to um, to learn. And you'll find that because they have shown, studies have shown, it's not a load of 
garbage. Studies have shown, for example, in the, in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, I'm sure some of you have heard of this, um, that your feelings affect your emotions and your thoughts affect your physical body. They've shown that people who are loved, who feel loved, and who have a lot of love in their life, have less colds and flu, are not as sick as people who are lonely. Indeed, they've recognized that a lot in, in some communities where, um, um, you know, in, with the elderly who might be bereaved so that they have pets. Because there you have the opportunity to have this relating and this love. They've shown that love actually changes your cells. So that's the next thing I was going to say. Process, paradox, I'll go back to paradox, love. Now, one of the big things about love, it's about, what we're actually dealing with here is love of self. Now, I'm not talking about ego love and I'm the greatest. That's not love. It's self-love. Now, you know that in Ireland, I, I think most of you in the audience would relate to, to that, as, as, uh, don't worry, as, as I do, that um, we grow up in an environment where, as babies, we've committed a sin, original sin. How does that help us? to believe in our divinity and our initial, our, our, our innate divinity and goodness. It doesn't. So we spend a lot of time with trying to build up a sense of uh, self-esteem, a sense of being uh, a good person. Now, not all cultures have that, but you see it, you see. You see it in the children. There's some kind of shame, maybe, that, that can be carried from this time. So, self-love. This is really the most difficult thing. When I was writing this book, Love in a Time, I talked about that in terms of, um, and I wrote this after very personal, probably my most personal book, um, after a, a huge love, uh, love wound, love uh, separation, divorce. Uh, well, we weren't married, actually, but anyway. Passons, as they say. Um, it, 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 basically, it was to look at what happens to us when our hearts are broken. And actually, what happens to us is amazing because it is an opportunity. It's a shattering of the heart. It's a sacred initiation to allow in more love and to allow in the divine. And, and part of that is learning to forgive yourself. That is huge. And, of course, in my practice, um, every day in my office, I was seeing people who were not able to accept love. I can't find the right person and, you know, whatever else. But how much are you able to love? How much are you able to accept love? It's quite hard if, at base, you feel yourself to be unworthy. So that is a huge task, this business of self-love and it's unconditional love uh, and part of that is just accepting where you are particularly when um, you are going through a difficult emotional period it's extremely important to be able to stay with that because what do we do we because it's so painful, and indeed, we have many rounds of this. It may start when we're young. We'll have one huge big round of pain or trauma. Then we'll move on. We'll have more and more. But when we're children, it's very difficult to handle. It's a very abusive situation. So what do we do? We separate out. Our soul is sitting up here, and I've seen that with people. Our soul is sitting up here somewhere for safekeeping while we move on and try and deal with life. Because it's too difficult to be in the body and to experience the emotion. Listen to this wonderful piece out of um, Emily Dickinson. She is, was a, a woman, as you know, who lived a tiny little life, never left home, but had, had the whole world there in her poetry. She was such a feeling person, and she projected love. She projected the God image onto this man 
who, I mean, I don't know the whole story, but the point is this is what she wrote when we're talking about being in this pain. He left, of course, and she was left in this big, big pain. She says, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step around, across, upon it, as one within a swoon. Sorry, I've lost the second bit of that. As one within a swoon. Where the open... Anyway, I know it. Where the open eye would drop him bone by bone. In other words, the trance allows you, whether the trance is drink, drugs, loads of sex, compulsive relationships... Uh, whatever the trance is, the escape route, that allows you to step around the pain. But if you can be in there, you can change it. It's a matter of staying with it. And it moves, it changes, it does change. It moves as you go along. I'm thinking of the words of... Um, I've been doing, a, and I, I've taken a little break from it, but I was doing a radio... I was doing a, a program on, on Connemara Radio and um, uh, using a lot of, uh, on healing and all of this, using a lot of uh, pieces from poetry and um, authors that I liked. And I love this one with Leonard Cohen from Anthem. He says, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. And of course, this is it, because God is in the wound. In other words, your wounds, our wounds, are conduits to our healing. Love the human being. We're so keen on trying to be perfect that we don't look at how perfect we actually are as we are. So, the healing being in the wound and God being in the wound means, if you like, being there, accepting it, working with it, and knowing that it is actually part of your journey to experience this. Sometimes, you know, people, um, you know, come into me and they're, uh, you know, why, why does this happen to me? I always get a bit, a bit you know, angry and internally pissed off with people who say why does it happen to me because we're looking at the victim here and if we're in a victim mentality nothing can change we are trapping ourselves in a very small world um, if we get into this victim situation and so it's very important when I was teaching I mean I am teaching I'm running a workshop in a couple of weekends a three day retreat workshop and I'll do some teaching there I'm still not happy with this thing, but anyway. Um, we t I talk about the inner archetypes that walk with us every day. You have the inner child. What might she be? She's a, she guides us towards healing, the, the inner child. But she's the guardian of purity and innocence. Because as children, we're meant to, be, to learn about life through play. But how many of us were able to do that? Because generally speaking, they may be what Winnicott called, again, I'm getting technical, this is uh, from psychoanalytic theory, um, uh, uh, children um, are meant to learn through play, but as Winnicott says, sometimes there can be an impingement on this through the, the mother's depression, whatever else, the, the, the early life experience. Um, so... Uh, um, the inner child, then we have the inner prostitute. What might she be? Well, the inner prostitute is a wonderful creature that I can relate to quite well, but it's the one of us, it's the part of us that will give ourselves away in return for something else. If we don't feel that we have the resources, spiritual, emotional, economic, whatever, necessary to take care of ourselves we might end up giving ourselves away and ending up in the wrong job just for the pension or in the wrong relationship just for the security, whatever it is. That's the inner prostitute. So she's the guardian of faith. 
when we begin to have faith in our own selves, in our own inner self, if you like, um, uh, that, and be, the, the ability to care for ourselves, then um, we transform that archetype. Then we have the inner victim, which I have very little time for. But some of us, you see, when I'm talking, some of you will relate more to some aspects and some to others. The inner victim is the part of us that wants to remain, do not want to take responsibility for our lives, and we remain, want to remain children all our lives. Now, these things can be collective as well in our culture. So, you know, we might have that kind of um, mentality around us. There's a little bit of it in Ireland. You only have to listen to the Joe Duffy long enough and you, you'll pick that up. Then we have the inner saboteur. That's another one that we can all relate to. This is the one. Just when we found the right gorgeous man to come into our lives that'll say, oh God, no, I don't know now, that's a bit much now, you know, you're getting a bit too close. Or, just when we found the job we've always wanted, we mess it up. That's the saboteur. The saboteur is the one that's fearful of change. And we are fearful of change, a lot of us, because we get used to, um, you know, being a certain way, and life being a certain way, and we think, if I can stay with that... um, I'll be okay, I'll be comfortable. But there's no growth in being comfortable, really. That's not to say that we need to walk around thrashing ourselves on the back, um, you know, and, and discouraging ourselves all the time, but at the same time, our life energy is pushing us all the time, as I understand it, to grow. And, you know, it's interesting because... Um, uh, you know, you see, as I had the privilege of being able to be there when, for a long time, with my father, as he was in the process of leaving the planet, because he was, uh, some of you may know, he was 101 when he died. And so he gradually, you could see, was coming to a place of, you know, uh, wholeness within himself, and he just kind of faded off and was ready for the next stage. Now, I, I wonder, this is my recent thought, in the way that life in the womb is a preparation for life after the womb, you know, outside of the uterus, is this a uterus? That in here we may be preparing for the next great birth into the spiritual realm. And so we are needing to allow spirit to come through our bodies and move in with that, to get to that place. Not everybody reaches it, but it is a lifetime journey. So I don't know, but this is something I'd be interested to explore a bit more and see what your your thoughts might be about it. Now, one more thing about living soulfully. We've got uh, process. We've got, um, what was the other one? process, uh, what did I say? The journey, yes. And um, uh, being, you know, receptivity, surrender, surrender. Now, there's another thing, paradox. Being able to live with paradox. How difficult is that? Very difficult. And what is it? It can come through in many ways. When there are two things here that are pulling you, and you don't know whether to go this way or that way. There is no resolution for the moment. The big task, as Jung would say, is to hold that tension of opposites until something else changes. Something will gradually change. Again, it's a process of surrender. Being able to live (coughs) with the bad side of life as well as the good side of life with all the negativity, the shadow, as we call it in Jungian terminology, the shadow is all the emotions we don't like, all the things we don't like. So you can sit there and and bring to mind somebody that gets on your nerves and you don't like them. You can be damn sure if you look hard enough, ask yourself the question, how am I like her? Or how is he like a, a part of me? So if we can learn to be mirror 
also to ourselves. It helps us. It helps us to withdraw the projection. Here's another term, projection. What is that? Most, some of you will know what that means. A projection is an unconscious arrow. I project onto you the demon lover or the, um, the great god, the wonderful hero. You can't hold that projection. You meet a, a gorgeous man and you say, oh, you're everything I've always wanted. But he can't hold that because it's a God image that you have. And then you wonder why he disappoints you. He falls off the pedestal. The same happens the other way around. You meet the woman of your dreams. Everybody, you know, you've had a terrible time. All, all the women leave me. None of them understand me. There you are, and you understand me. And you know somewhere inside yourself, my God, I better not put a foot wrong, or that's it, I'll also topple. <laughs> so we project. These are projections. And we do this because we need to... In- Why do we do it? We do it because we need to encounter the shadow. We need to understand the shadow. We need to understand our own shadow. Now, there are collective shadows as well, um, as you know in history you know and there's like you can see in the United States you certainly saw it for a while around the time of the the war um, that uh, you know America was all good and evil was over there so this is the archetype of the shadow when you project onto it was also projected onto the Jews during the Holocaust these are called collective archetypes and that's the archetype of the shadow so the shadow is in the psyche the enemy, the one you don't know. It's the foreigner, but also the enemy. And in, this brings me to a really important part of the talk about dreams. Because in our dreams, particularly white people, us Caucasian people, if we dream of uh, black people or people of a different color, often that is the personification of the shadow, because it's the unknown, it's foreign. And so we, and also we can dream of um, people that we don't like or we have an issue with. It's the shadow again. And the the way to work with the with, with okay, working with our dreams is hugely important. Put that down in terms of living soulfully. Dreams. Write your dreams. Work with your dreams. Because that is the unconscious. That is our soul talking to us. It's not rubbish. It's our soul talking to us and helping us to bring about balance in our everyday lives. So you might have, a dr- you might have consciously, I always tell the same thing because it's, it's, it's uh, the clearest. I had a person come to me once who had s- kept saying she, her mother was brilliant, she was wonderful, such a loving mother, um, you know, I had no problem with my mother. She comes into me in a terrible state. I had a dream last night that my mother was a prostitute and a drunk. I said, oh dear. And she said, well, you know, this is terrible. What does this mean? And so we began to work with it. And of course, what the psyche was saying, your mother is human. She has flaws. Bringing about balance. You need to see the whole picture. Not that the mother was a prostitute or, or a drunk in particular, but she was human and the person was idealizing. Idealizing does not serve us. It doesn't serve us. So the dreams are very much part of our lives. And I have a, you know, dozens of, I have a dream book by my bed. I write my dreams. It doesn't take a lot of work. And it's a few minutes a day. Now you might say, I don't dream. Everybody dreams. But Jung says, but we don't always remember them, it's true. Unless we uh, make a conscious decision to. But all of you will have certain dreams that you can still remember so well years later, or a recurring dream. Or I have one dream and I can still smell the paint of the dream. It was so vivid and that was 20 years ago. So these are archetypal dreams. Some dreams are very, very vivid, much more than others. And there's a lesson in them. If you have a recurring dream, which most of us have from childhood, this is the psyche trying to get you to look at this problem, whatever it is, or to bring about healing by um, 
by bringing it to consciousness as much as possible. I used to have dreams, uh, uh, and I still, the odd time, get them, but not very much. I used to have dreams of going on a journey. I was going off to America, usually, and I had no luggage, no, no, no bags, nothing. Or I'd miss the departure gate, or the plane wouldn't take off. All of this. So... Um, when I was in analysis, because most of us therapists have to be in analysis for a long time before we can be let loose on, on, on the rest of us. Um, and so when I was in analysis, after about nine months to a year, I had a dream with my analyst. I had a dream that, again, the same dream about not having my luggage, etc. Um, but this time, the only thing I had was a black dress with buttons up to here that my analyst had given me. Okay, so uh, the clothes in our dreams represent symbolically the persona. What is that? That the persona is our um, outer life, is our ability to, uh, to, 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 to uh, be in the outer life, if you see what I mean. It's, it's the mask we have. Not the mask isn't the right word, but it, it is coming from that Jung took it from the Greek masks in the plays. It's the role we play in life. So you might be at a wedding dressed in rags. You know, I, I had one as well where um, I, I'm doing an exam and I haven't studied. And there I am next morning and the exam papers are coming up and I'm thinking, jeez, I haven't done any work. So this is obviously an anxiety dream of not being ready, not having the uh, adequate resources not having the, um, the, 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 you know, what we need. So the persona is another archetype that we develop as we grow up. Uh, everybody develops a persona. And it's built on, what is it built on? It's built on, our per, the first persona is built on our, the introjection, the taking in of our parental values, such as, you wear your good clothes on a Sunday and you go to Mass, whatever it might be. So you wouldn't be seen dead going to Mass in your pyjamas. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, it's the taking in of those initial parental and cultural values. This is our persona. Then when, you know, so when I come to work, I'm not here, you know, in my slippers. I am here in, you know, my work clothes or whatever else. So... We, this is a, a, an archetype that we all develop along with the ego, the persona. The opposite of the persona is what we've just been talking about, the shadow. So the brighter the persona, the more you dress yourself up and identify with your role, i.e. the doctor or the judge or the school teacher. And when you retire that road is gone, if you haven't developed what's inside, you crumble. So the opposite to the persona is the shadow. It's, it's the, 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 what's not yet known in you. It's your latent potentialities. Do you understand? It's the part of you that you haven't yet brought to life. And we all have a shadow. As I say, we project it outwardly or we uh, you know, gradually learn to bring it into ourselves and accept that side of ourselves. It's like me, you know, coming to a great sense of acceptance that I can be a bit of a crybaby. I'm a very emotional person, but I love that now. I don't mind. But I used to be, oh, for feck's sake, would you stop this stupid crying again? I only had to watch This Is Your Life and I'd start crying, you know. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, but so, when you have self acceptance, you, 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 you are much more at peace with yourself because you're okay with who you are. You're okay in your own skin. But to, you need to know your own skin and not push everything because the Jungian idea of the shadow is different to the Freudian idea. Okay? The Freud, uh, for Freud, the shadow was in the unconscious here was all the things we repress and we don't like about ourselves. Whereas for Jung, it's a much broader thing. It also contains our potentialities, our ability to be a dancer when our parents wanted us to become a school teacher. That's in our shadow, okay? So it is also our potentiality in the shadow. And as we grow on this journey, the idea is to become more and more 
in touch with your shadow so it's integrated and you're a whole being much more of a whole being and ready to pass on down into the next uh, stage now um, there's loads of things I, I, I can talk about uh, just say uh, uh, because I really like some questions from people uh, that's how I work with the most um, with people and questions etc but anyway in terms of um, process paradox being with, you know, beingness, allowing the feminine to live in you. So if you want to spend an hour on your dreams every day, good. I'm much better at it now. I wasn't. I was a really driven person, would you believe it? When I came down here, I learned to actually do meditation in the morning. Don't think it's a waste of time. Don't get up and rush to the computer. Do it. Go for a walk on the beach with the dog. So... This is the feminine, it's being, it's allowing ourselves to be. Love, now there's one important thing, gratitude. This is easy, we say, but you know, it's not, but it changes things. I was coming up there and I was a bit hassled thinking, oh, I might be a bit late. And I was rushing by and there was a man there and he smiled at me. And I I thought, oh yeah, and I just smiled back. But you'll find that if you're... um, smile at someone who's in a grumpy humour you'll change him or her she'll smile back probably Uh, um, my ex-husband was a dentist um, and he (laughs) one of my ex okay my second was a dentist and he was telling me how he um, used to travel on the tube every this is before I met him on the tube every day in London and he had to go, th- you know, he went from wherever it was to wherever it was. It was the same journey. And he'd come out and the ticket collector at the time or the person that would be there to take the tickets used to go to him every morning when he saw him because he'd done his teeth, you see. <laughs> so, so this put him into a good mood and he felt, he felt good about it. So the, the gratefulness and, you know, to get up in the morning and instead of saying what you haven't got to be grateful for what you have got. And I do that now much more than I used to. I had several bereavements, like many of you, I'm sure, have experienced, of friends younger than me dying in their 40s. And uh, one friend who said to me, you don't understand, she said, this is about a month before she died, I am grateful for every day. I'm on the planet, that I'm still alive. So I thought to myself, that was the end of me grumbling about things. It really was. Gratefulness is a huge thing, to be grateful for what we have. And look at it, look at where we live. I mean, we're so lucky to be able to be here. Okay, it was raining all summer, and you know, most of us <laughs> want to get away for a bit of sun. But still, gratefulness, remember that these emotions can affect our lives. Because they go into the cells of our body. And one more thing about dreams. If you, and you will throughout your life, if you have a dream with, and you dream of a wonderful, if you're a man and you dream of a beautiful, beautiful woman, like a goddess, and she gives you something or whatever in the dream, or we dream also and we have this beautiful image, no one can take away it away from you, what it feels like. They can say, oh, well, that's only your dream, it's rubbish. But you walk around all day with that feeling. God, that was a great dream. Wasn't that wonderful? You see? So it's so important to pay attention to those things that we are not in our everyday path. And the other thing that, that, that's really, really, I think, more and more happening to us now is, and we're being led that way, I feel that. I have a spiritual master, and she has helped me to really trust that, that everything happens on an energy level, stroke spiritual level, before it manifests. So it's, it's important to be there. It's important to imagine and be with the image. For example, you never see, you know, you, you watch the rugby matches, you know, and they're, they're going to do this kick. Well, they don't just go like that. They look for, they look, they imagine the ball going in before they do it. And then it happens. So that's so important to keep that, the imagination. Thank God down here, I think imagination is big. But still, in schools, we were not really taught 
to be dreamers or to imagine too much. You know, pay attention now to two and two is four, or whatever it is. <laughs> Took me ages to learn maths. Yes? It's good. And what are your views on mobile phones? Now, you see people on them nearly all eight hours of every day. Do they lose all common sense, or is that the world that we must accept? Well, I think, it's, I think it is a double-edged sword with technology. I think on the one hand, it um, has enabled us to uh, be closer, if you like, or tr- to transcend boundaries, to send messages to people in Australia instantly and to be in touch with them. But on the other hand, I think it has led to a kind of disembodied way of being. And um, I, I think they're necessary at some level, but I think that they can also be uh, very, you know, take us away from, from really being. I do feel that. Um, I, I don't know enough about the, uh, the, the actual physical effects of the radiation or anything like that, but I don't think it's very good to have. I always put mine on loudspeaker anyway, so I don't have to put it here, and I wouldn't be on it all day. I don't know. What do you think? No, I just like to hear your view. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think, actually, that young people today have a real problem with intimacy, with relationship, with really relating. They can break up on a text. So you're not confronting the person. You can have relationships uh, with people you don't know. So I do think there is a problem with intimacy. I do, very much so, with relationship. And, I mean, it's terrible, you know, what's happening in the U.S., of course, with all these guns and children going out there. I mean, they're totally off their heads, you know. So I think it's um, a difficult one, yeah. I'm I'm a GP, and I work mostly in obstetrics and women's health. And I heard you saying that you were helping uh, women birth in the U.K. And I was wondering what is your... Well, how are you working in utero? With the, with the baby in, because we know in neurobiology that it's fundamental. I mean, the, the life of the mother, when she's carrying the baby, the sounds, the presence of the father, her own trauma. And I was wondering, what's, what's your experience of that? Well, I'm what, really interested in that. Yeah, no, but what I did was I had um, a birth centre that I created where women would come in pregnancy to do yoga. Mm-hmm. and meditation and visualization every week mm-hmm. up until the birth and yoga positions and all of that. How I think the women connected with the babies was the visualizations at the end of every class, mm-hmm. you know, is bringing them inside their bodies. And, uh, you know, and there's all sorts of things that, that uh, for example, I would have women coming to me, and I lived in London at this time, the UK, I would have women coming to me at three months of pregnancy to start, and they were all, you know, I'm going to have an epidural and da da da, and all the rest of it. By the end of it, they were saying, oh no, no, I want to experience the birth. And so it was literally just being with other women, doing the meditations and the visualizations, um, and attending to their emotional well being. There are studies, as you well know, uh, women who feel more nurtured in their pregnancies tend to produce happier babies and have less problems. I mean, I would be a great exponent of home birth. Um, And I had two of my children at home. But here, it's not as easy. Yeah, it is very... And technology, I think, has wreaked havoc on women's uh, own sense of um, ability to give birth. Um, well, the lights of the labor board, for example, that is the absurdity. The violence. There are studies, too. And in my first book, I write about that. But this book now has become like gold dust. There's hardly any left, and I don't really sell it. I keep it for my students. But it, they, they're online. I've managed to... I'm talking about phones. I've managed to grasp the thing. I had the books converted, and you can now download them. Isn't that great? You can download them from Amazon as e-books. So they're instant. It's not the same as having a physical book, but still. Anyway, just to say that the books are available online as well. Yeah. Can I just ask you, just on that same subject, you know, the gentleman was asking about phones, and, and then you said children being disconnected with their emotions and feelings. Do you, you know there's a lot more uh, assisted births now, you know? Yes, um, I know. Do you think that the child and the mother, at a very crucial time, are being robbed of the nature of the important part of that deli- natural deliverance? They're being induced, they're being sectioned. I know sometimes it's necessary, but that robbing of that 
we don't know how precious and how spiritually important that moment is. And maybe the, the, the amount of that that's around has, it has changed the energy of the intimate ability of these I'm sure. I'm sure that it's 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 a part of it. But but the 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 high tech births or the technology around birthing has been around quite a long time. Um, I think it's definitely part of it. At the same time, a lot of the work seems to be because I used to work with the women postnatally. They'd come back, and then this was when why I trained as a therapist in the end because a lot of them had such traumatic experiences from the imposition of technology and no awareness or understanding of how they might feel about not having uh, a natural birth, that um, uh, it took a while to do that healing. Uh, so it's a lot for the mother, as well as the baby. But the point is, uh, this is something that comes up at these international conferences. There's, uh, there's pre- and perinatal psychologists, there's obstetricians, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's midwives, there's therapists. Okay, We're a big bunch of people. The men in general, the surgeons or the doctors or whatever they were, they are very keen on the trauma of the baby, but they don't mention the mother. The women, mostly me and a few of my colleagues, what about the mother? Because remember, there is no baby without a mother. So if the mother, the healing happens with the mother, it happens automatically with the baby. And this, is, this goes on in early life and when I work with clients with them um, later on, you know, in life and uh, uh, those that come to me the odd time with their children. Uh, because it's the mother that heals it in herself and then has the awareness to be there for the child. It, it's so important and it, it's so interesting how it t- tends to get polarized like that and the men always see the baby and but Winnicott said there are no babies there are only mothers and their babies so that initial bond is so important and the healing of it but having said that those of us who have not been able to heal it physically with a physical mother that doesn't mean that we can't heal it ourselves we can do it we can do it ourselves but you know it takes work to do it takes work, self-awareness, and courage. Huge courage. Yeah, I was just interested in your point earlier on about the realignment uh, of a baby or child after suffering yes. birth, such yes. as forceps. Yes. Birth. My daughter, like, she's 31, and yes. she's severe, severe at forceps delivery. I'm very interested in that realignment. When should that have... Is it too late at this stage to... Well, well, you know, you see, the thing is that that's all subtle body work. And, I mean, uh, I, I don't do it personally. But they say that... No, I don't think it's true. But they say that... Um, and I know people who work with uh, newborns and small children. Uh, they say that... Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, cranial osteopathy <coughs> can actually do a lot of that. Because even at my stage in life now, I was probably in my 50s, um, I uh, used to see a man in Dublin who um, was kind of like an osteopath, but he was a wonderful healer, he was a wonderful man. But any time he put his hands up here, because I was born by caesarean, um, I, I just would want him to, you know, I would go into this kind of spiral thing, because caesarean babies don't do this movement that is archetypally imprinted in us to be born. Have you ever seen a plant just appear? No, it grows up. So um, with forceps, there is also my eldest son was born with forceps. I don't think it's ever really too late. But, but remember, um, with respect, it's not a problem unless it's a problem for them. If you feel it's a problem for yourself, that's different. But if you feel that it's something that she could get help with, then I would recommend stuff like cranial osteopathy. A lot of this work is very, very subtle, and it's in the cells of the body. I just quickly say this. When I was doing my training, um, and part of after the, finished the, the main training, I did some extra training with uh, Roger Wilger, who was doing past life regression therapy. We were his first group, so we were with him a lot. 
it triggered my birth trauma because I got severely claustrophobic. I was coming home on a plane from Spain and I thought I would die. I wanted to scream because the claustrophobia just came in. I wanted to get out of this plane, but of course you can't get out. So I got home, rang him, and he said, get your group together. Your, your birth <coughs> trauma has been activated in your body. I was scared. I was terrified. I couldn't go into the tube, nothing. So we got the group together, and I went through a process. That's all I can say to you. I went through a process. I said to them, I knew what I needed. I said, get close to me. There were like about six, six of them, girls. And I just borrowed my way through. I don't know what I did. And I don't know how long it took. I just knew I kept doing it until I felt it was over. And everybody around me was holding me. And you know, it, So what I'm saying is, it's, it, it, it's in there. If it needs to be released, it'll be in there. But I don't have any training in, I can do regression therapy and all of that, but in terms of the realignment of the chakras, I'd say somebody who's very tuned in on that level would pick that up. And just to say that we're very lucky to have a craniosacral therapist over in Erislan. Um, so anybody wants to know about her. And some people work... Um, uh, see, I was much more involved with this early stuff when I was living in London, and so I had friends who were doing this work, but some people work specifically with babies as well. Uh, the, all I learned to do when I had my... Two of my babies were born at home, but all I learned to do with my son uh, was um, massage, massage the feet. And at the time, because we lived in a very Jewish area of London, we were probably the only Gentiles on the road, and most of my women would, would be terrified while they were pregnant um, of having a boy, because they knew what this meant. And uh, so in the massage therapy, uh, the, the massage guy was trained in releasing the trauma from the thighs of the little circumcised boys. And believe me, it was some work. So there are people around who do that kind of thing. Now, okay, so let me finish um, with um, a poem, if that's okay. Um, feel free to take some of my flyers and stuff, and I'll talk to you again. Okay. This is a poem people have asked me for. I don't know who wrote it. It says, author unknown. It was given to me by a client that I worked with for many years, and I think it's very beautiful. I would shut your eyes if I were you. After a while, you learn the subtle difference between holding a hand and chaining a soul. And you learn that love doesn't mean leaning, and company doesn't mean security. And you begin to accept your defeats with your head up and your eyes open, with the grace of an adult, not the grief of a child. And you learn to build all your roads on today, because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans. After a while, you learn that even sunshine burns if you get too much. So plant your own garden and decorate your own soul instead of waiting for someone to bring you flowers. And you learn that you really can endure, that you really are strong, and you really do have worth. God bless you. It's lovely to talk to you.